At Behind the Seed Podcast, we explore the changing ways we feed the world. We talk tech, research and how it will affect paddocks near you. I'm Bridget Smith, a former rural journalist and your host. I've seen you know, weed problems so bad that you can't even harvest the crop. There's just, there's just nothing left to, to harvest. Uh, more often you'll find that in the, in the poorly competitive crops. Um, but I've seen, um, certainly uh, in some of the high rainfall areas, I've seen ryegrass so bad that there was no point going out and harvesting the wheat. When it comes to research and development around herbicide-resistant weeds, Australia is leading the world. Some of that can be credited to Associate Professor Chris Preston from the University of Adelaide. He has spent most of his career helping farmers find solutions to herbicide-resistant weeds, which are common in the tough Australian landscape. It's a challenge, he says, that excites him. After returning from a working stint in the US in the 80s, Dr Preston said he wanted to do something meaningful. With a skill set in plant biology, he quickly saw an opportunity in herbicide-resistant weeds, and from then, he said he hasn't been able to escape. Dr Preston, why do we get herbicide-resistant weeds? Well, the short answer is because we use herbicides. But it's a bit more complicated than that, of course. Um, in Australia, our farming systems tend to be large-scale, uh, highly mechanised, and there's relatively little labour available. So farmers are looking for what are essentially labour-saving um, options in terms of uh, managing their farms, and um, agricultural chemicals are a very good labour-saving option. So why is the number of herbicide-resistant weeds growing? Well, because we have this farming system where herbicides really remain the main thing that we're doing at controlling weeds. And so what that tends to do is that we tend to be putting pressure on our herbicides all the time. And when we get resistance to one herbicide, what most farmers think of doing first is, well, what other herbicides can I use? This just becomes a cycle. Well, you know, as I said earlier, you know, it's driven by economics and it's um, driven by uh, the ability to actually, you know, farm the large areas that we're farming. And so, you know, the work I've been doing is not to say that we have to not use herbicides, but a lot of it's about what can we add to herbicides to make the farming system more sustainable? Well, what can we add to make it more sustainable? Well, we've got a number of techniques that we can use, um, some of which don't really fit our system very well, so we tend not to use them very much. So cultivation, for example, tillage is something that we don't do very much of because of our soil types. But some of the work that we've been doing has been looking at what we can do at the, the front end of the season, where how do we actually manage the, the weeds that can escape from herbicides in that uh, part of the season. and then. You know, RE in Western Australia has been concentrating very heavily on the back end of the season where they harvest weed seed control tactics. So one of the things we do have is those harvest weed seed control tactics. But at the front end of the season, one of the things we've got is crop competition. And how does that work? What crop competition does means that any surviving weed has to compete with the crop. And if you can provide some more crop competition, then you can actually reduce the amount of seed set that those surviving weeds will, will set at the end of the season. So we're not looking at you know crop competition taking over from anything. What we're looking at it doing is to try and stop seed set of survivors of our herbicides. How is that tactic working? Well, we've looked at a, a, a couple of places where we, you know, thinking about how do we apply this. We've been 
talking about crop competition for a long, long time. And, you know, there are things you can do with seeding rates and row spacing and um, so on. And generally what we found is that those sort of practices are not really taken up very broadly because there's other competing things happening in the farming system. So, you know, farmers don't want to narrow their uh, row spacings if they're using residual herbicides because that causes problems uh, and they don't want to have to change their equipment all the time for different crops. So what we tend to do is to you know, kind of get a set row spacing. So what we started thinking about, well, what other alternatives are out there? And we've come up with, you know, really two that work, uh, one in wheat and one in canola. And so in wheat, what we've found is that if you sow wheat, you know, essentially on time, um, so at the, really the first sowing opportunity that you've got, instead of waiting to try and control more weeds before sowing, what happens is the, the ground's warmer, the wheat grows faster, it gets out of the ground, and later germinating weeds struggle in those crops because the canopy closes early. So we've come up with this package where you use effective pre-emergent herbicides, early sowing in wheat, and that can actually be a much better practice than going later with sowing in wheat. So we're encouraging farmers to put wheat in at the at the front of their sowing um, program rather than waiting. Um, in canola, we've actually taken a, a different approach, and that approach has been to understand that there's quite a lot of variation uh, between canola cultivars and how they perform early in the season. So we have had some very popular cultivars. Um, Stingray was one, for example, in the south that um, yielded quite well across a range of environments. But their problem was was that they didn't grow very well at the beginning of the season. And so if you couldn't get control of weeds with your herbicides, then you ended up with a big herbicide load in the crop. And the problem we were coming up against was the clethodim, which was our main in-crop herbicide for ryegrass in particular, was starting to fail. So we did a lot of work looking at um, what was the benefit of using more competitive varieties, particularly in the hybrid space, again, coupled with using herbicide tactics. And what we found was that compared to some of the less competitive open pollinated varieties, if you chose to use a hybrid instead, then you could reduce ryegrass seed set by about 50%. What are the most common types of herbicide-resistant weeds that we get in Australia? Well, the big problem we've got, and the main problem across a lot of Australia, is ryegrass. It's a, it's a ubiquitous weed. Uh, it gets resistance quite readily. And we've got resistance to, in fact, all the herbicides that are now registered to control it in one part of our cropping system or another. And so that's that's probably the number one. Um, the the second most important one is is wild radish, and you know wild radish has got resistance to a to a range of herbicides now, um, and it's also weed where competition can help you manage that. And after that, we're starting to get into weeds like um, wild oats in um, the northern um, part of our cropping system is quite problematic. And then we get into these sort of summer fallow weeds, uh, barnyard grass, uh, feathertop roads grass, and so on, that can be, which are resistant to glyphosate and can be really hard to manage. So there's quite a range of weeds, but ryegrass is probably still the, the number one that we worry about. 
You're listening to Behind the Seed, a podcast brought to you by Pacific Seeds, changing the way we feed the world. Certainly what we've um, observed is that farmers nowadays have fewer weeds in paddocks than they would have had 20 years ago. So one of the things that our work has done, at least in, in the South, has convinced farmers that they need to keep their weed populations lower. And they'll use a whole range of different practices for that. And the benefit of that is, is that in some cases it doesn't really matter if you have some herbicide resistance in your population if it is not very high because you can manage it with all the other practices that you're doing. So one of the things that we've really focused on in Australia is getting those weed numbers down, controlling seed set, so this harvest weed seed management work that gets done. And we're, you know been leading the world in that concept um, until a very short period ago everybody else in the world was just worried about controlling weeds at the front end of the season to protect yield and we were recognizing that if you didn't stop CTEC you had to do that all again next year and that was fine when you had herbicides but when your herbicides failed it didn't work so well. So other countries are looking to Australia to see what we're doing in that space? Well we're now you know, they're now looking at uh, harvest weed seed management tactics, for example, in both Canada and the United States. Um, there's um, interest in those in Argentina as well. So as these other countries have got into a position like Australia has where they've got some intractable resistance problems, um, they've actually had to start looking more broadly at what the solutions might be. Instead of going, we'll just use another herbicide. How does Australia rate in regards to the number of resistant weeds um, compared to other parts of the world? Well, we're second. Um, it's one of those, you know, as I like to describe it, we're in the silver middle position over herbicide-resistant weeds. And, um, you know, it'd be really nice if we didn't go any further than that. Um, but it, it's really a consequence of the, the sort of farming system that we have and, you know, how herbicide is such a key part of that. And yes, there's no doubt we're going to get some more herbicide-resistant weeds. The real uh, component of what we need to do is to make sure that when they happen, our farmers know what to do. They know how to manage them. And, you know, there are farmers farming now who've been farming with herbicide resistance for 30 years and they're still farming. So it can be done. What type of damage can these weeds do to crops? What have you seen in your career and the type of damage on farm? Oh, well, I've seen, I've seen, you know, weed problems so bad that you can't even harvest the crop. There's just, there's just nothing left to, to harvest. Uh, more often you'll find that in the, in the poorly competitive crops. Um, but I've seen, um, certainly uh, in some of the high rainfall areas, I've seen ryegrass so bad that there was no point going out and harvesting the wheat. So you can actually have a total crop failure if you don't get on top of that. We don't really see that very often, though. As I say, you know, most farmers have um, understood that they need to keep their weed numbers lower, and they've been very, very good at, at acting on that. And what we certainly know from our, our long-term um, trials is that if you've got low weed populations, then that's going to give you the greatest uh, economic benefit down the track because you'll be able to take advantage of those good years when they come. What's been the most exciting development for you in your career in the herbicide-resistant weeds? I think um, some of the things that have really excited me are, uh, about you know, the work I've done in herbicide resistance um, have really been about when we've been able to come up with you know, adoptable solutions. 
So um, I, I sometimes get accused of you know being able to talk so excitedly about um, the herbicide resistant problems we've got, uh, but really that's just a, a, you know to inform people that they need to do something because you've got to get them moving. But it's a, it's around the, the solutions that we get. Uh, you know, some of my things I've done, I'm most proud of, and you know the work that uh, that we did that, um, for example, helped bring Sakura to Australia. Um, we've also uh, pioneered um, the post-emergent use of box of gold as a as a salvage tactic, and um, farmers in the high rainfall zones have found that very, very, very helpful. Um, the other one is the the work we've done. Um, in more recent years around um, crop competition and, and pre-emergent herbicide um, mixtures. You know, the, this ability to be able to go out there and just by having the right crop in the right place or sowing at the right time, so not very much change in management, reduce your um, weed seed set by 50%. You know, so those sort of things are, are some of the uh, some of the sort of highlights. What was it about the, the weed control industry that... Um uh, took your fancy when you were considering uh, career prospects? I think a lot of it was really about um, the the sort of um, interesting problems that were there. Um, so, you know, working on the on the other side of trying to understand why we're getting resistance, you know, that's uh, um, it, it's one of those things that, you know, in, in the problem-solving space they might call a wicked problem. You know, it, it's difficult, complex um, and so intellectually challenging. But having done that, then trying to sort out what you do about that. You know, can you use that information for anything? And, um, you know, we certainly did some work in the 1990s where we started to understand that if you got resistance to, in ryegrass to the Group A herbicides, they weren't all the same, and you actually had opportunities. And so we used those chemistry in Australia for a lot longer than, you know, we technically should have been allowed to. So... It's, yeah, so a lot of it was really, you know, this um, combination of wanting to help people with something um, along with the the sort of problem that it was and the, that it wasn't a, a necessarily a straightforward problem, so it was intellectually challenging. Now, you don't come from a farming family. How has that helped you in your job? I, well, yeah, I've, I'm a couple of generations away from the farm and uh, um, I think that one of the things they did was that I came into agriculture with, no real preconceptions about how agriculture should be done. Um, so, you know, I didn't have the, you know, the family had always farmed this way and that's the way you should farm sort of concept about it. Um, and so I think in some ways that, you know, sort of tends to, to make you look at things differently. Now, as I mentioned, you've spent your career helping farmers. What's their reaction like when you step onto their farms? Um, oh, look, I think that... Um, you know, the, the sort of feedback I get from farmers is that, uh, you know, they, they are really appreciative of the, the fact that I'm actually interested in their problems. Um, and I think in some ways, not so much that I'm, I'm just interested in their problems, but I'm also interested in, in hearing from them about their problems and what they're doing. Um, you know, as I like to, to say to people, you know, sometimes part of my job is to work out whether what the farmers are saying they're doing is is actually working or not, and because uh, there's you know there's a lot of farmers out there and they're all thinking of ways to solve their problem. There's only one of me, so they're going to come up with a lot more ideas than than I am. And, and say some of our best ideas have, have actually come from farmers or consultants who who have observed things and said, well, you know, this is what's happening, and then we've gone out and tested it to 
to find out whether it really, you know, what the what the numbers do they stack up or not. Um, so, you know, I think that that, that combination of, of of you know sort of providing solutions and helping farmers, but I think also that that I've got this this interest in their problems specifically that they they like. They like to you know they like to feel like they're not alone in trying to trying to solve these issues. Behind the Seed podcast is proudly brought to you by Pacific Seeds, breeding, producing and supplying leading broadacre seed solutions. <laughs>